Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. This is the All Sports Podcast devoted to your favorite teams in North Texas. Welcome to Ballsy, a production of the Dallas Morning News and Sports Day. Our weekly show is proudly hosted. Okay, strike that. Our show is hosted by Kevin Sherrington, Evan Grant, and myself. I'm David Moore, and who knows, maybe we'll have a special guest or two along the way. Catch other episodes by subscribing to the Ballsy Podcast on iTunes. We're also on social media. Just search Ballsy Podcast on Facebook and Twitter, and you'll be notified of the latest episode. Don't forget, it's Ballsy with a Z. Are you ready, sports fans? Ballsy starts now. Hello, everybody. Welcome into Ballsy, the Sports Day DFW Dallas Morning News Sports Podcast. I am Kevin Sherrington, joined by Evan Grant. Hello, Evan. Good morning, Kevin. That sounded kind of weird, but uh, okay. Evan, it's the morning after the day we never thought would come. Texas has a second national championship in men's basketball. This is a pivotal day in both my lifetime and career. Waiting all this time, I was 10 years old when Texas Western won the national championship. Uh, Well, I was nine, actually, almost 10. Won the national championship over Kentucky, Adolph Rupp's Kentucky, and an historic team, the first black, all black starting five uh, for Texas Western and Don Haskins. Uh, and now, after all this time, after 73 years after Bader first played in a national championship game, also against Kentucky, they came out last night and completely dominated, befuddled, bamboozled Gonzaga an undefeated team trying to become the first team since Indiana in 1976 to go all the way through the season without losing a game. And frankly, they were never even in that game last night uh, on, on Monday. That was a, uh, an unbelievable uh, performance by the bears. Uh, I, I think Houston should feel much better about what happened in, in the semifinals when the, the bears blew them out uh, they did just about as well as Gonzaga did uh, uh, in the championship game Monday, 86 to 70, the final score. Uh, we have a second national men's national champion in Texas. Unbelievable. I, I don't want to take anything away from Baylor at all, um, which is always what you say when well, you're about to take something away. Well, from this somebody. is a bad way to start. Holy but cow. I, I mean, you know, that, that semifinal game, I, I'd love to go back and see the track record for how for how teams have played in these, like, classic semifinal games, these absolute wars of semifinal games, and how they recover two nights later and, and play the national championship. Um, well, it's funny you should mention that, because in 1983, Houston played Louisville in the semifinals. Uh, the second half of that game, uh, I called it at the time uh, – a dunk back by Houston. They came back in that game. 
Many people believe that that, uh, or observers believe that that game changed the course of college basketball uh, because it, it the, the tempo changed. It was high flying, dunks everywhere. It was an unbelievable performance, and uh, and a lot of people feel like that because of that game that that Houston was listen. There's no way North Carolina State can beat Houston, right? Look what they just did to Louisville, uh, a really powerful team, uh, an emotional, momentous game. And then come back two days later, they're flat. Uh, they, they came out very, uh, very poor and uh, were just not ready for the kind of uh, game that Jim Valvano had designed for North Carolina State. Yeah, I, and I, again, this is not to take anything away from the accomplishment of, of, of Baylor. I mean, obviously, Drew has done a great job there. He has built a national championship program. They deserve all the credit in the world. Um, but I also know based just on what my Twitter timeline looked like on Friday night and, and again on, uh, on Saturday, um, that Gonzaga-UCLA game, I think for Gonzaga, that was in a lot of ways the national championship game. Hadn't they tried to play UCLA twice during this misfit of a season and had both of those games kind of washed out by, uh, by COVID situations? And, and so to win that game in overtime, I think it was going to um, uh, to take a little bit of, of out of them, but I, I think for Baylor to come out and just absolutely dominate from start to finish, you can't when you when you have that position, you have to take advantage of it and you have to continue to step on the gas, and and that's what the Bears did last night. Yes, they did. And, you know, one of the things that they established here, and of course, I, uh, I should say Monday night, because we're not recording this on Tuesday at all. I don't want no, anybody to think. No, no, Monday night. Yeah. Okay. We're, this is a timeless podcast. Um, the, uh, and also a clueless one, but that's beside the point. Um, the, uh, the, the thing that, uh, that Bader did last night, I think is that they, what they established is that you know, we already knew that, that guards ruled the NCAA tournament and, and Baylor had four guards who were as good as anybody else in the tournament, probably. Uh, but the, but the real issue for me in this game and what really clearly rattled Gonzaga was, was Baylor's defense. Uh, this is a lot of the same kind of formula that Chris Beard had for Texas tech in 2019, when, when the Raiders made uh, red Raiders made the, uh, the final against Virginia before losing. Uh, and now certainly it was the formula for this Baylor team. So it'll be very interesting to, to me to see uh, the the pattern that emerges here. Because I, I, I have to believe that there's going to be a lot of, of schools across the country that are going to decide, you know what? It is really hard to find guys who are, who are great shooters uh, and, and, and play great offense. We can find guys who can play defense, uh, who will be gritty, scrappy kind of players. And I, I really think that Texas Tech and Baylor have really set a, a new standard here. And I'll be interested to see what Chris Beard will be able to do, to do as he takes over at Texas. If he can institute that same brand of, of defense and offense, very hard-nosed play that he had at Texas Tech and has such success with. And if Mark Adams, who is the new uh, coach at Texas Tech, who it was Chris, well, he's the old coach also. He was Chris Beard's assistant, longtime assistant. He's 64 years old, been around a long time. A little bit of a surprising hire to me. I thought there were a lot of guys that they could have, have hired. Uh, I know that they interviewed Darvin Ham, former player at Texas Tech, who's an NBA assistant. 
Uh, they also were supposedly going to look at Joe Golding and Abilene Christian, who, of course, upset Texas and uh, sent uh, Shaka Smart on his way to Marquette, and as well as Grant McCaslin at North Texas, uh, who also has some Texas Tech ties. So uh, there were a lot of good candidates for that job. We'll, we'll see if Mark Adams was the right guy or not. Uh, a lot of the Tech players have already talked about the fact that they are going to stay. They're not going to enter the transfer portal with the four million other players who are now out there in the transfer portal. Uh, and like, and by the way, just I'd just like to say uh, along those lines, um, the transfer portal is not the evil that everybody's making it out to be. Okay, uh, that is a uh, most of the players who are in the transfer portal are just guys who played at small schools who wanted a, a chance to play someplace else who, who weren't playing uh, at other places. And now they are. So I, I think what we have to realize here is this is this is a good thing for these college basketball players, in my estimation. Well, and it's uh, clearly it's it's clearly ramped up the mid-majors, right? You know, I mean, it, it, it's made the mid-majors a much a much bigger player come tournament time because a lot of these kids are transferring from from powerhouse schools where they were they were recruits and didn't play to more mid-major type schools and getting a lot of chance to play. And and we're seeing a lot more. um impact come tournament time well you know it's it's like that thing that uh, the rangers always talk about that you know uh, it's more egalitarian Kevin, why are you always bringing this back to baseball i know well you know especially this baseball which is not very good but it's a more egalitarian type of thing we're, we're listen when you've got gonzaga and baylor in in the nba in the nba file, and when you got them in the ncaa final you know what in the world's going on in college basketball? Well, this is a great thing. This, this is, this is a sign that, you know, for everybody who's all worried about the one and dones and how they dominated basketball. Well, this is a sign that, that, that here's a new wave running through college basketball. And this is a good thing. I, I think this is going to be great. I think you're going to see more teams with success with older players. You know, that's what Chris Beard wants. He wants older players and we'll see if he's able to do that. At Texas, it's going to be a little different for him there. Uh, I have questions about whether that fan base will be happy with uh, with the, the kind of players that he's always come up with. Uh, if they win, they ought to be happy. Uh, that, that should be the bottom line, right? Uh, but you never can tell. When, when uh, My experience in 25 years is that the Texas fan base has been happy one time, and that was 2005 after it won a national championship. So um on the football side so i i don't know that i've ever seen the texas fan base happy with a coach or a program um in my quarter century here not for very long they're not no. uh and, so. and I, I also think the one other op uh, observation i would make here on this is i'm, I'm stunned that you're making the, the the statement that the big 12 is leading the way in defense in a sport um yeah, yeah but that's, that's that sounds crazy, doesn't it? Watching the football. Like, you know, though, that's what uh, they, the, deep, the Big 12 was better in football and defense last year. But we're not talking about football. We can't win anything in football. It's this not state. a football state. It's not it's a football, not a football state. state. It's a basketball state. Come on. You know, speaking of which, we're going to bring on our old pal right now, Calvin Watkins, uh, who's going to come in and talk to us about the draft. But I want to say this first for Calvin Watkins, who is the father of basketball players. Is that not true, Calvin? Yes, I'm the father of basketball players. They used to be football players. In fact, my son went to U of H football son. camp. My, my, my middle son went to U of H football camp 
and um, who was the coach um, there at the time? Uh, the former UT quarterback, um, Major Applewhite. Major Applewhite was there, and he made a real impression on you, didn't he, Calvin? Made a big impression. He wanted to know who my my son's high school coach was. Chris Seflo was offensive line coach. I knew him from Tulane, so I was thinking, hey, we're going to U of H. You know, we're good. But then my kids decided to play basketball, and then I think our boy got fired or something. So well, but like they can still go to Houston and play for Kelvin Sampson. No, I've seen your son yet, Duncan though. on Facebook. A lot is that of Miles Duncan on Facebook? Yeah, Miles is Duncan. Yeah. yeah. If, if I thought he could play for Kelvin Sampson, I would not be doing this call. I'd be looking <laughs> for agents. Okay. We would not be having this call. Where, where, where does Miles get those kind of hops? Because there's no way you can't jump over a uh, a doorstep. I mean, come on. <laughs> I think when I was in high school, I was able to grab the rim, but I could never dunk. That's so if I you were if you were falling from the top of the gym, you could grab the rim. From the top of the gym, and save yeah. myself. I could grab yes. the rim. Yes, yes that's know good me to know. so well. That's yeah. good to know. I think it skips generations. So I assume maybe my my father or maybe my grandfather was athletic. I don't know, but or maybe well, from the mom's that, side of the family. That's what both my boys play sports in college, and that's what we all say in our family. What the, where did this come from? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, Calvin, uh, it's great to have you on. We were we just been talking about uh, a Baylor winning the national championship. Uh, Baylor's now won in, in men's basketball and women's basketball. It's the uh, center of the basketball universe uh, in Waco, Texas. Who, who, who could have imagined that? Um, certainly not me. Uh, listen, I've watched a lot of bad uh, Baylor basketball over the years, covered some really bad games in Heart of Texas Coliseum down there. Got locked out. Uh, it, it, I had to climb over a barbed wire fence after leaving Heart of Texas Coliseum. Not that I'm holding any grudges or anything uh, against uh, uh, Baylor because of that. But I am really happy for, for Baylor to have achieved this. Uh, it was hard fought. Scott Drew has done a fabulous job there. And hats off to those Bears. Enjoy this national championship. Ride, it as, ride that wave as long as you can. Let's talk about uh, the, uh, the Cowboys and the draft. We've had a little bit of uh, a shifting again. We had another trade. Uh, we already had one trade where San Francisco traded up uh, for the third pick. Uh, now we have uh, another trade, not a trade of a, of a first round pick, but a very uh, a big trade for Carolina. Uh, uh, sent three picks to the Jets for Sam Darnold. Uh, and so that would seem to indicate, not that, uh, that Carolina with the eighth pick was going to take a quarterback uh, necessarily, uh, but uh, they might have, uh, and it, it seems to be that probably with the eighth pick now, Carolina probably takes an offensive lineman. Uh, maybe Rashawn Slater, who is uh, very popular these days for his utility and his ability to play probably anywhere across the line of scrimmage um, or across the offensive line anyway. Uh, I don't think he's going to play on the other side. Uh, so uh, I wanted to ask you, first of all, Calvin, how any of this impacts the Cowboys, do you think? Do you think that if Patrick Sertain is still available at 10, the Cowboys will take him? Yeah, I think if he's available at 10, he's going to Dallas. Um, I think when, what you're seeing is teams that need quarterbacks are, are trying to find him. Like I saw just before we started, 
I saw Atlanta is now thinking about trading out of the number four pick and they don't need a quarterback. They have Matt Ryan. So say you're Denver, say you're New England who needs a quarterback. They might be trying to get there to four. So we might have four quarterbacks taken in the first four picks. And then the fifth team is Cincinnati. who don't, they don't need a quarterback. They got your boy, Joe Burrow. So now that's where the draft starts. And so, yeah, we'll see the cornerbacks fall in a sense to 10. And that's where Patrick Sertain or, or J.C. Horn will be for Dallas. But I think uh, Sertain is there for Dallas. You know, uh, it's very interesting, and, and I'm glad you brought that up about Atlanta at four. Uh, and, of course, Evan might argue with you about whether Matt Ryan was still the quarterback. Uh, I, was about to, I was about to interrupt on that and say, uh, <laughs> you sure about that? Uh, I think the people in Atlanta are quite confused about what exactly the Falcons are doing with Matt Ryan at this point. Well, it's interesting always- you say that because – if they they restructured his contract, right? So if they cut him next year, there's like $40 million in dead money that they're going to have to absorb. So you have to go, well, that's telling you that he's going to be here a while. You know, and now that I saw Adam Schefter tweeted this morning that Atlanta's thinking about trading out. So that's, to me, they're not getting a quarterback because they're full quarterbacks that you can all get right there. And if Atlanta's want one, they're getting out of there to try to get maybe Kyle Pitts or maybe a tackle or a defensive player. Yeah. I was just looking at the, looking at the board to me, the guy mm-hmm. that stands out is Kyle Pitts to me for, for the Falcons. I mean, mm-hmm. I, he, I, there's not many game changing tight ends or, 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 or receivers of that caliber. And I, I think that that he's going to be an impact pick. Um, maybe the biggest impact player outside of the quarterbacks on the board. Well, if they, if they trade from, if Atlanta trades out of four, they trade down very far. They're not going to get Kyle Pitts because he's going to be mm-hmm. a top five, six, seven pick. Uh, so that will be very interesting to see how that works. Uh, but I got to tell you, I, I think, uh, and I wrote a column about this last week. I, I really believe that there's no way, no way that Bill Belichick sits there at 15 with all those <laughs> quarterbacks sitting up there with all the problems he's having at quarterback now and doesn't try to go after one of those guys. And I, and I believe that, that Mac Jones just looks like, a, a Tom Brady starter kit. And, and I don't know how he doesn't try to do that, but now I see Daniel Jeremiah who, who I like, and I like his judgment of quarterbacks anyway, a former NFL quarterback. He's got San Francisco taking Mac Jones at three, which is really vaulting him to the top of the draft. He went from a guy who was a, maybe a, a first round pick uh, to a guy now who could be a top five pick, if we're to believe that uh, kind of uh, projection. So would the Cowboys at this point, let, let, let's, let me ask you this, Calvin, would the Cowboys at 10, let's say that one of those five quarterbacks has fallen, you know, Trevor Lawrence is going number one, Zach Wilson's going number two. Those are pretty much givens now, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. The questions will be Mac Jones, Trey Lance, and Justin Fields, and where they go. If one of those five is still a, uh, one of those three is still available at ten, would the Cowboys consider trading down two, three, four, five spots if they thought they could still get one of those defensive players that they really wanted? That's interesting. Um, it's a gamble. So, like, say Denver. Say we get there. And, and not Denver, New England, which is 15. Right. And Dallas is at 10. So say Belichick calls Steven and says, let's make this swap. Dallas has to decide, will Sertain or Horn be there at 15? You know, 
and they have to look at who's in between 10 and 15 if they think their guy is going to be there. And if not, then they have to say, okay, let's get Horn from South Carolina, who was fantastic this past year. And if he's not there, do you gamble? And you know the Cowboys love to gamble. Do they get Caleb Farley from uh, Virginia Tech, who's coming off back surgery, you know, who might whose stock has fallen? He's probably a late first-round pick now because of the back. So do you say, well, we can get him. We can get him right like we did Jalen Smith, like we did Sean Lee, and we'll pick him at 15. So that's the gamble you take. But to answer your question, I say if I'm Dallas, I stay at 10, get my guy. If we need a quarterback, that's your problem because we got our quarterback. So you get your guy and you move on. So let me ask you that about your guy. Do you believe that Sertain is clearly better than J.C. Horn and Caleb Farley if Caleb Farley is healthy? I don't know. Um, Patrick Sertain's dad is pretty adamant that he thinks his son is the best <laughs> corner in the draft. But I, don't well, I think my son him. should be playing in Major League <laughs> Baseball. But, you know, that's, that's, that doesn't count, Calvin. I mean, I mean, that's because I mean, you've watched the, the Rangers, Kevin. <laughs> well, that's true. They can play that kind of Major League Baseball. Uh, uh, they both, both of those guys played in the SEC, so they they saw top talent every Saturday. Right. Um, you know, Horn was fantastic at his pro day. Sertain comes out there, and he he looks woo, he looks fantastic too. I don't think he can go wrong with either guy. It is interesting that as of last week, the Cowboys have yet to meet Patrick Sertain, you know, over virtual. Now, they meet everybody at some point, and I think they will meet with him. Um, but it was interesting that here we are. It was like late March, and they had not met with him. Um, but that, that might not be a big deal. That might be a smoke screen. But I do believe from everything I've read, because I haven't been in any, any pro days with my stopwatch, but I think Sertain is probably the best corner in the draft. And if, and if he's there, you got to take Patrick Sutain. Well, let me ask you this question, Calvin. Based mm-hmm. on what yes, you're sir. hearing from the Cowboys, is Patrick Sertain the guy that they want? Is he their target at 10? Uh, no one has said that's our guy. Because um, I think uh, no one has ever told me in my years of covering the team that we're targeting this guy. Because they're always afraid that we could target this guy and he's not going to be there. Right. So what they do is they'll say there's three or four guys that we like. He is the guy they like. Horn is the guy they like. They did like Farley, but now the back raises some concerns about whether or not he's worth getting at 10 was uh, in the scenario that Kevin presented. If you trade down to say 15 with New England, do you get him there? You know, or if you go even further down to say 24 or whatever, is that, will we accept getting that guy at 24? And if Kevin's writing that night, Maybe we'll find out if Kevin believes that's okay. So, um, but definitely, I think Sertain is the guy that they're interested in. Why wouldn't they? Um, they went to his pro day. They went to Horn's pro day. So they have a good feel um, for what he's about. Joe Witt, who's their secondary coach, who coached in Atlanta, as you know, he, he saw a lot of SEC football. So uh, there's a lot of tape on this kid. But I think Patrick Sertain is the guy that they, they're, they're targeting. Now, let me ask you something else here about this. I'll throw another little uh, um, monkey wrench into this thing. A lot of, of mock drafts really want the Cowboys to take an offensive lineman, uh, it, it, whether that's Rashawn Slater, that. uh, who's a more versatile guy, or Penny Sewell, who sat out this last season from Oregon, but from, from all accounts that I have read about him, considered a generational offensive tackle. Mm-hmm. So if one of those two guys is still available at 10, 
would the Cowboys seriously consider one of them instead of a cornerback? Um, Bucky Brooks, who works for um, NFL.com, is a former scout and player. He was one of the first people I saw that mentioned this, saying, get your tackle, and then in the second round, get your corner, like he did the previous year. Um, because his thought process and a lot of other people's thought processes are the tackles are they're falling apart. So at some point you got to replace them. Let's repl- let's replace them now. We'll have one of those young rookies be the swing tackle, and then they take over for Tyron or for Lyle Collins in 2022. Um, and I and I get it. I understand that. Um, if you if you do draft Slater at 10. I think the other kid will be off the board. I think he's going to Cincinnati because they got to protect Burrow. Yeah, um, I, I, I agree with that. They got to protect Burrow. Yeah. They have to take yeah. Sewell. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Sewell, I think, is gone. So it's, it's Slater, basically. Um, then you better get in the second round at 44, you better get your corner. It be, either it's Greg Newsom or Caleb Farley. And if you get Farley, then guys like you, Kevin, are going to write, this better work out because Farley's coming off a of back surgery. And he's supposed to be ready in late July, so we better see his behind in the Hall of Fame game against the Steelers. If they get so, him in the second round, I got no complaints with the Cowboys. You got no complaints? Okay, no, okay. No. I'll take that I'll back. Take it, okay. Because this is supposed to be a pretty minor, you know, surgery that he's having. It's not like he's it's reconstructive surgery on his back. He's not having, <laughs> he doesn't have spinal stenosis, you know, as far as we know. No, It's a disectomy. It's what Romo had. It's similar yeah. to what Tony had. But Tony yeah. was 50 years old when he got his, and this guy's <laughs> – in his twenties, but was, to answer your question, I think, I think he was like forty nine. Actually, he's forty nine. Yeah, before his birthday, it, no. it was his fifty season. Yeah, that's uh, what year was. fifty. Yeah, I would say no on the tackle. I would get my corner because I'm sure the next year there's going to be generational tackles that come around. You know, so and and from what I was told, Tyron Smith's neck surgery is not a major surgery. You know, he didn't get neck fusion. Lyle Collins had a, a hip problem. And that's supposedly supposedly it leaves some uh, pain. So they should be fine. But yes, at some point you do have to address these issues. Zach Martin's 30 years old. He's one of the best guards. You got to address, at some point you got to replace him. So when do you replace him? And I don't think the line is, is, it's time to replace the line. Get your corner, take care of your defense, and then you can get your attack on the middle rounds or you can get a generational tackle next year. Yeah, I, I have to tell you, I would agree with that because I think what people look at is the fact when you're, and of course it works both ways. When you're right on top of the situation, sometimes you don't really see it, you know. Right. Uh, but for the most part, I believe in the local people. I believe in the <laughs> local media that they know the situation better than even Bucky Brooks knows it. And mm-hmm. and I think that uh, it, it's, it's interesting to me, the whole I.L. Collins thing. So let me ask you about that. There seemed to be uh, an impression left, or at least there was an impression left with me, that there was something a little fishy with Lyle Collins last year. Like he, like he was not taking things seriously, not doing what he's supposed to do. Had such a was had really made such a great impression on the Cowboys, and it had kind of obviously come out of nowhere uh, after not getting drafted, and it was a, one of the Cowboys' best personnel moves of the last ten years. Uh, mm-hmm. Was with Lyle Collins. Is his head right? Is everything okay with him? Is he ready to play? And is it, it was it more of a physical thing last year or a mental thing? I think it was more of a physical thing because um, I heard that he was out of shape. Yeah. And so, so I inquired 
and, and as you will, as you will. And someone said, no, he's in shape. He just has these bad, a bad hip. And if your hip is sore, it's hard to get around. And if you're, what is he? Six, four, 300 pounds, it's hard to move around with a bad hip. I don't care who you are. So that was his problem mainly. Um, the attitude apparently is fine. I will say this. He did practice for about a week. And you know, the great blue white uh, game that the Cowboys always have that this year they made the media shoot the helmets instead of the formations this year, because Mike McCarthy wanted to be like Chuck Knoll. Oh, sorry. I didn't mean go on a tangent. Anyway, <laughs> in the blue white scrimmage uh, that used to be open to the media that now is restricted now because Mike McCarthy's got, you know, all these great game plans. You're not bitter uh, about Lyle, this, are you? No, yeah, I'm no. very bitter about this. Yeah. Lyle Collins participated in the blue-white scrimmage. And then the next day, he was done. So I think he was on his way back. Uh, he was just dealing with this hip problem for about uh, about a year and a half. And finally, they just said, let's get the surgery. Lyle, um, Tyron Smith was dealing with this neck problem for about two years, from what I was told. And then finally, he said, look, I can't do it again another year. So let's get the surgery. So it appears that these guys are on the path to recovery and they should be back to their, you know, pre-injury form. That's what we hope. Oh, that's what the Cowboys hope. Yeah. All right. Now let me, I don't want to go down this rabbit hole too far with the draft because, you know, when people do these seven round drafts and it's like you get to the fourth and fifth and sixth and seventh round, it's like, you, you got to be kidding me, right? You know, I barely know after the, after the first round, I don't even know. Yeah, absolutely. But let me ask you this. So we're just talking about offensive tackles and offensive linemen. Uh, let's let's say the Cowboys take Patrick Sertain or J.C. Horn with that first uh, that tenth pick or wherever they end up picking. I think that would be excellent. That's exactly what they need to do. Uh, they're, you're answering a need and you're getting well, probably one of those two guys is the best defensive player in the draft. So I, I think that's a, a, an excellent pick at that point. In round two, uh, I, I have been in favor of what I think our John Owning, our film studies major, has uh, proposed, which is that if they could get Richie Grant, the safety from UCF uh, really in the good. second round, be mm -hmm. a really nice pick. He's a real ball hawk, a guy uh, who just seems to have a, a skill set that really fits in the NFL. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that would be great, even though they have all these uh, safeties. They just what well, they just signed like six safeties it seemed like after all the these safety years playing I, linebacker yeah yeah safety playing linebacker whatever that means holy cow <laughs> keanu you know neil it's like what the heck what is he you know he's gonna be lining up at quarterback wildcat next thing you know <laughs> so so anyway you you've got all that situation what if they went for a a samuel cosme sam cosme from texas six seven offensive tackle played started three years at texas uh uh, what about something like that? Is it possible you think that they could go for that offensive tackle if it's somebody of that caliber? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm okay with them. When you talk about let's find our tackles of the future, there you go, second round. I mean, this is a pretty good draft for offensive linemen. You know, you might get ten linemen taken in the first round. You know, you gonna get one, you gonna get two in the top ten, and then a lot of a lot of teams need protection. You know. Um, you know, even Dak Prescott needs protection. You know, um, I saw with the Steelers, they got rid of like three offensive linemen. They need guards and set and tackles. They're going to get somebody at the bottom half of the first round. So, yeah, if I'm Dallas, um, I, I don't mind getting him. Alex Leatherwood from Alabama. He's a very good interior offensive lineman. You right. get him in the second round. Uh, now, I understand the point John's making about 
let's get a safety because yeah, the safety position has been a disaster ever since Darren Woodson left, probably maybe when Roy Williams left, but, and Grant is considered like maybe the second best safety behind a TCU kid, um, Trevor uh, Mooring, but you better take care of your line. And here's the future swing tackle. You can get him in the second round, or maybe you get your future center. I know they drafted Tyler Byots from Wisconsin last year, but hey, Mike McCarthy always likes to say, we want competition. So, okay, here's some competition here. So, yeah, I'm all for getting an offensive lineman around too, no doubt. No doubt. Listen, Calvin, it has been great having you on. We've loved, you know, you're so much better at this than David Moore. It's unbelievable. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I hope that David's not listening to this. Uh, no, he's, he's skiing right now in uh, Utah somewhere. He's skiing in Utah, you yeah, know, yeah. what, what is he, we can't have him up there doing that kind of thing. Come on. That's what he does. That's, that's what David, that's what football writers do. They go skiing in Utah. And yeah, then he's going to go sit around and, 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 uh, and drink some wine and comment on that and the quality of it, the bouquet and uh, <laughs> all the rest of that stuff. The jammy oakiness. Yeah. <laughs> Cheryl, Cheryl, I'm enjoying the uh, the 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 uh, oakiness of this. It's got a it got a little bitterness to the bottom of it. I there, I like there that are some hints of jackfruit and uh, uh, notes of tobacco and um, uh, instant hints and coffee. Notes. Hints yeah. and notes. I love that kind of talk. You know, uh, I, I wine get, talk. I get, yeah, yeah. I get I get a real note of uh, oakiness <laughs> in my diet coke. Uh, but anyway. I'll tell you, I, I am an expert on the on the balance of carbonation to syrup in the diet coke. Oh, and, listen, nobody's and also better than me. The amount of ice that you want to have in the diet coke, and I can do a whole blog on that if people would like. No, we don't. I, we know you would I'll like to do that, Mister Rodeo Goat Sandwich, and uh, you know the Evan on. Grant Burger. Get the Evan Grant Burger <laughs> Rodeo Goat. It is kicking some ass this month. It is a bacon and gouda stuffed patty with some bull's blood microgreens, which I have no idea what the hell they are. A French fry potato salad, which who knows? And it's got some hurtado or uh, zavala brisket on top of it so get, go get that kevin and you uh, too, if it's an evan grant Appreciate sandwich it. if it's an evan grant sandwich it's got it's not bull's blood it's bull something but it is not <laughs> it is not bull blood I'll you know you if that. it's an evan grant sandwich it's very salty yeah mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Calvin, it's been great having you on, man. We appreciate it. We'd love to have you back sometime when you when you can work your way into our schedule. Hey, no problem. Uh, whatever you need, you just shoot me a text at night. And I'll, I'll answer it. I'll be ready. <laughs> it, was, it was not like midnight. It was. Uh, no, I'm always up late. I'm always up two o'clock in the morning. I got nothing. That's on. right. That's you. That's you. You're Day or night, anytime. Anytime. Yeah. Thanks, Calvin. We'll see you. Never know when the Cowboys are going to have their next crisis in the middle of the night. So, got to be ready. All right, guys. See ya. There goes Calvin Watkins. He's the greatest. We love him. So we've talked about the uh, the the national championship uh, for Baylor uh, today and uh, what that means for Texas basketball uh, and portends for uh, programs in this state. You can't knock Texas basketball anymore, pal. We're back, baby. It's a, it's a, it's a whole new day here. Uh, no, I, I think you can knock Texas basketball. You can't knock basketball in the state of Texas. In the state of the Lone Star basketball. I'll, I'll, I'll call it that. Yeah, there you go. 
Uh, I'm predicting in the next 10 years, three more national championships from the state of Texas. How about that? You want to attach schools to those? Uh, no. Okay. Uh, but I mean, look, we got, we had two teams from Texas in the final four this year. Yeah. Uh, Texas tech played in the championship game two years ago. That's three schools right there, pal, right on the doorstep. That's right. And before Baylor kicked the door down, kicked it down. Unbelievable. What the, what a program that's Scott drew, you know, I have to say I was, I was not really on board with Scott drew early on. Uh, he's, he's a peculiar character, uh, but uh, he, he really, he knows what he's doing. He's pretty okay. Oh, it took okay. 18 years. Okay. Billy bear, Billy bear. That's me. Billy bear. That's me. Yeah. I don't know if that really works, but anyway, so uh, we've talked about the draft. We've talked about uh, uh, Baylor and basketball in Texas, the new crown, newly crowned King of men's basketball. They were already close to being the queen of women's basketball. Uh, they got it going on down there in Waco. And now we're going to talk about a real bummer. We're going to talk about the Rangers, man. What a letdown. We go from the pinnacle of sports to the basement. Just like that. Yeah, I, I, it's, you know, I was thinking about this coming home last night from the ball, ballpark. Um, they've played four games. Nobody expected this team to be very good. Um, and they haven't been. Um, they've lived up to all the, the expectations. I, I actually was thinking, you know, has my tone been too hard on this team? Because they because nobody expected them to be any good. But I think there have been some things that have just shown up that, that, that have been worrisome um, in, in these first four games. And, and, and by and large, you know, save for, for the top of the first inning in Kansas city, uh, they've been fairly non-competitive in, in three of those four games. So it's, um, uh, it, it, it's been, it's been a little bit disheartening to see this start. I think, you know, the thing about this to me, that's not very surprising is that, uh, I, I just going into the season figured this is not going to be very good rotation. This, this is not going to be very good pitching there. There, of course, we already knew that the, the, the uh, bullpen was bullet riddled and that was going to be an issue for a while, maybe for a good while. Uh, but you know, when Kyle Gibson is your opening day starter, uh, this is a serious issue. This is a team that went from the last couple of years of having Lance Lynn and Mike Miner at the top of his rotation. This was a, this was a rotation as good as a, as a lot of teams and a lot of competitive teams in baseball. Well, it was good. It was good at the top of the rotation. It had yeah. bona fide top half of the rotation pitchers. They have none this year. And I mean, I, you know, the fact that Kyle Gibson was the opening day pitcher said really all you needed to say about this rotation. But all of that said, you expected Kyle Gibson to come out and throw strikes and not nibble on opening day, especially with a five, nothing lead that, that he piddled that away um very very quickly was was disappointing and it put pressure on a very young and inexperienced bullpen which was a worst case scenario for this team in 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 at the start of the season um Kohei Arahara was about as expected in his second start Jordan Lyles was was um was quite good on Sunday um yeah. better better than I expected and then yesterday you know Mike Fulton Evich or Monday I should say back on Monday uh, much earlier in the week, yeah. Mike Fulton Evich, um, 35 pitch first inning with, I think it was seven of the first 10 hitters he faced. He had full counts or six of the first nine. 
um, just can't do that. That's unsustainable. And once again, they just put the Rangers in a really bad position. And what I feel like is possible of, of happening here is as good as the Rangers offensive approach has been for the start of the season, you keep getting into situations where your, 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 your starting pitcher is going 30 and 30 plus pitches in the first inning where you're falling behind early in games or where you're blowing leads, your offense is going to get out of that patient disciplined approach and try and make something happen. And then that's, that's when you really get into some, some dangerous prop, uh, characteristics you know i didn't go out to the game yesterday because i hadn't had my second shot yet i get my second shot wednesday so uh then i'll be able to go out there and and, and uh uh and you know i didn't want to get out there and, and contribute to any more of the uh, chaos of uh, how many people were there six million people seven million something like that it was a sellout in a forty thousand seat stadium of 38 uh fans but i i should say that's that's just me being cynical look there are for opening day, you've got family tickets, which are comps. Comps are not included in sold tickets. You've also got a lot of sponsorship obligations. And really, the Rangers probably had two years worth of sponsorship obligations. So that accounts for the other 2,000 or so seats. I will say this, though. With all of that and accounting for all 40,000 seats in the stadium, there still were only about 37.5 in the building. There, there, were, there were some chunks of empty seats. Let me ask you something. I didn't notice this before. Has Dallas Truck World always been stamping all over the field? No, that's new. Um, yeah. I can't recall if there was a Camping World ad on the field last season or if it was during the World Series, but they did not have ads on the grass um, at, Globe Life, at Globe Life Park. They had, they had it on the mound. Dallas Truck World on the mound. There were, there were um, early in the season last year, most teams had something on the back of the mound that was equality or um, right. some teams had Black Lives Matter. There were um, statements on the back of the mound. But as the season wore on, I believe they did go to, there were some ads there. And look, Major League Baseball basically told teams last year, sell whatever you can. You need to make whatever revenue you can. You know, all those tarps in the outfield that covered the outfield seats, they sold all those. So uh, right now, based on the amount of money that baseball did not make last year, I think uh, I think MLB has told teams, be, cre- be as creative as you can. If you can sell something, go ahead and sell it. I don't think you have to really tell the Rangers owners to try to make money. You know, they don't need any encouragement. Uh, no, I, I think sometimes they may need to be held back a little bit, but no. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so anyway, I, I know that just, and I don't want to labor on this Fulton Evich start, but uh, I know there was some frustration with the, with the strike zone, you know, where is it, you know, and, and it, it did seem to be a little all over the place and Toronto was found off a lot of pitches, but what does that tell you when, when they're, when a, t- when a team is found off, that's what hitters are supposed to do. You know, that's telling me I'm not able to put this guy away. Uh, and that was, uh, and that was a struggle for Fulton. I, I, I'm not, I'm not going to sit here and criticize the strike zone yesterday. Again, when, you know, it's, it, when Steven Matz comes out and, and absolutely yeah. dominates the Rangers for seven innings, it's, it's hard for me to say that, that an umpire, I, I don't believe that umpires have, um, uh, vindictiveness against any one team. They may have bad strike zones, but, uh, I don't think they've got, a one-way bad strike zone. So um, either the Rangers were far too indiscriminate at the plate yesterday, 
or Steven Matz figured out how to master that strike zone that uh, that Jansen, uh, I forgot how to, Visconti ha, uh, had behind the plate. What I had a problem with with Jansen Visconti behind the plate is how long his uh, he delayed his strike calls. That, yeah. that was maddening. It's a little dramatic. Uh, yeah, that's like don't you're not the show, pal. Uh, let's let's just move you're on. You're not call Leslie Nielsen. Yeah, let's let's call the strike and move on. Yeah, and Stephen Matz looked like uh, I thought he was going to throw a no hitter. Uh, I, I thought the first couple innings the, the Rangers looked completely clueless against him. He was you know three pitch strikeouts. You know it was just unbelievable at that point. Uh, yeah, so. you know, and I mean again after that really patient um, first weekend with a ton of walks. They face a lefty. Um, they had faced a lefty in minor, but uh, they're going to face a lot of lefties. I mean, they've got a predominantly left-handed lineup, and until they prove that they've got a way to effectively counter lefties, managers are going to set up their rotations to face lefties. And they finish off the series with Toronto against a lefty in Jin Jin Ru, who you know, was the National League runner-up in 2019 for the Cy Young and is the American League runner-up in 2020. So it ain't going to get easier with the left-handed pitchers. Speaking of which, thank you for that transition. We're going to talk about the fact that uh, the Rangers need a right-handed hitter to back up Joey Gallo. Uh, they, they've had Nate Lowe there, but he's left-handed, and he's certainly been – Nate Lowe has been the the – it, early on, anyway, the the acquisition of the season for the Rangers, he's lived up to everything they hoped he would be. It's a very small sample size, but it sure looks good. But you can't have these two left-handers batting back-to-back there. You, you with, Well, it's not two left-handers, you know, because well, you've know, got Dahl hitting second, you've got yeah. Gallo hitting third, you've got Lowe hitting fifth, and on a lot of days, you, you know, you've got another left-hander behind Lowe. Um, so... You can't have five left-handers in a row. You can't have four left-handers in a row. And and right now they're really, really, they're really, really. Sh- well, you can, and uh, if you if the opponent's starting a right-hander, you could potentially stack the three lefties in a row as they did against Kansas City on on Sunday. Um, and and a lot of that also depends on what the bullpen makeup is of the opponent that you're you're facing. But um, the bottom line on all this is they need a right-handed hitter in the middle of the lineup. Um, Chris Davis was going to be that guy, or at least was going to get the opportunity to be that guy. He's hurt. Um, so they went to Nick Solak and Nick did not have a good spring training. I thought there were a lot of swings and misses on fastballs and that has bled into the season. It's been a really rough start for Nick Solak at the plate as the cleanup hitter. Um, and it's been equally as rough at second base. He's had a hard time completing double plays. He's had a hard time at, at, at the, uh, at some of the basic stuff at second base and you know they they decided to move on from Rugnet Odor they were going to look at Nick Solak this year what Nick is going to have to do as a second baseman is OPS at about 800 or close to it to be an everyday second baseman because what's clear is the defense is always going to be suspect um maybe average at best you know I I I want to say that this kid is is pressing a little bit and that he's trying really hard to make himself an anchor in this lineup right now. I think it will get better, but there are, there are reasons why he was not an everyday player at any one position previously. And, and that's showing up in uh, on the defense at second base, but more concerning to me right now is the number of swings and misses nine strikeouts and 14 at bats. That's, that's unsustainable. Yeah, it is. Uh, and that, uh, you know, the problem is, and it's not just uh, Nick who I, I, 
listen, he just looks like a guy that needs to play about, oh, I don't know, 500 more games at second base before you, you could really believe in him as a second baseman. He just looks uncomfortable around the bag. Uh, he, he doesn't have a good arm. Uh, he's not able to make that, you know, if he, if he cranks it up, yeah, he can get it over there. But you know how that is on a double play. You can't always do that. And, and uh, well, and just, when you put more effort into it on a double play, that's when you're liable to overthrow and the ball is going to tail or sail on you. Yeah, and that's what it's been doing. And and as you said, he's not hitting either. I mean, he looks when they throw him a fastball in, uh, boy, he looks like he's just hacking. Uh, and it is really uh, hard to watch. It's painful to watch. So, you know, uh, one of the things that that uh, Chris Woodward has tried to sell here is that, all right, look, we're going to we're going to play a different brand of baseball here. I know everybody else is Homer happy. And, and what we're going to do is we're going to be fast. We're going to be athletic. We're going to play great defense. Uh, we're not going to give up walks. We're, you know, we're going to take pitches and we're going to get our pitch, you know, all these really fundamentally sound issues, which would be, or we're all great. And those are all great sales, but right now they're not playing good defense. Uh, and as you said, except uh, now, uh, and certainly on, on uh, Monday, they look like they were not being as patient at the plate, not taking pitches. Uh, and, and for me, this is always the issue. The worst thing that could have happened for them was to come out like this, to come out and just get drilled by Kansas city in the first two games, because then on a young team that puts you on such a bad footing. And then they go, ah, and it's 160 more games of this, you know, and that, which is always the issue. You know, fans always want to say, why don't they get rid of these guys and just play young guys? Yeah, because it, because this is what happens. You get young guys out there for a long time, you can ruin them, you know, and, and that and that is a very dangerous possibility with this team. Um, and let's let's break it down to a smaller set, right? Um, Kansas City was the easy part of their start to the season. Uh, the Royals were not a good team last year. We're not supposed to be a good team this year. Um, they were going to come home and face a Toronto team that I think has a pretty good lineup. Uh, and then it was seven games against what amounts to a potential World Series matchup of the Padres and, and, and Tampa Bay. And so if you get off to a bad start, you don't hold your own here against Kansas City and then Toronto. You're looking at maybe being two and 13 or something like that coming out of the gate. And then then it's when guys are looking around the room and saying, oh, my God, how bad could this year be? And that's when you really, really get to a dangerous spot. I think the Rangers have, for a most part, for the most part, been pretty consistent. Yesterday, as Woody said, you know, a left-hander who throws and can, commands a changeup is really difficult for a left-hander to com combat. So let's give Stephen Matt some credit yesterday. Let's see what happens today and tomorrow. Um, but I, I think that that this team has cannot look ahead and cannot say this is what could be awaiting us they've just simply got to come out and fight each day because every day is going to be an uphill battle for this club it really is well you want to, and what you want to see too from this team uh what, what i wanted to see from this team where guys take a step up you know uh and leody Tavares and in, in, in particular an example of a guy who in a small sample size last year did a great job, uh, certainly played great defense, uh, showed a little pop and uh, that he hadn't shown in the minors. And uh, so this was all really good. And then the, and then the Rangers in my estimation went too far 
spring training came out with the idea that he's going to be the leadoff hitter, uh, which I don't, I don't know if he'd ever shown uh, that that was possibly in his skill set is to be a leadoff hitter. That they abandoned that, and that was good that they did it in spring training. But still, you started him off with a negative uh, to, to start the season, you know, to start at spring training. And he's just never recovered. He's, he just looks clueless at the plate. Yeah, and I, I don't know how much of that is, is due to the leadoff thing because they pretty much 86 the leadoff thing a week into spring training. Um, I was a little bit curious about, you know, the idea that they were going to camp and saying, okay, he's going he, to be our center fielder and potentially our leadoff guy. But I do think that they said, you know what, we're putting too much on him pretty quickly, and, and they took that off of him. Where I think the bigger issue is here is Leota Tavares is the 13th youngest player on a major league roster right now. He's incredibly young. At no level of his minor league career has he shown an ability to be an offensive threat. At best, as a young guy, he's kind of held his own at most levels. The one exception was when he went back to down east for a second year you know, kind of lit it up for about two months and then went up, then went straight to Frisco. And this is the problem I have in the Rangers development situation is the minute a, the, a guy seems to show any kind of um, progress, they're ready to challenge him at the next level. And you're not getting guys up here who you're 100% sure are going to come to the big leagues and not only hold their own, but be successful. You're getting guys that you hope can make the jump. There's a little bit, there's, I think there's been a little bit of desperation, a little bit of belief in that, and not enough analysis. And this is, I think, what we're seeing with Leody Tavares. Look, the other day in Kansas City, he had a good eight-pitch walk. Now, he got himself behind in the count um, uh, early, and he did battle back. But the three balls he took that ended up being the last three balls in the walk were well above the strike zone. I mean, nobody should be swinging at those. He took a walk, and it was key to that to a three-run inning against, uh, against the Royals that really kind of sealed the game. My point here is that's one at bat. Um, can't focus on one at bat because you can't, you, he can't have one good at bat in four games. That's not progress. That's not acceptable. What you, what you have to see is you have to see good at-bats every time out. I don't have a problem with the Rangers having some exposure to Leody Tavares in the big leagues in, in this April because of the unique circumstances. There is no minor league season right now. If you send them to um, minor league spring training, it would basically be a repeat of spring training, which gets tedious and will wear a guy down. If you send him to the alternate site, he'd only get about six real games. So you get some chance to expose him. And if he doesn't, if he doesn't turn it around, if he doesn't show really, really well here very quickly, when the minor league season starts, you send him out and it has to be with the instructions that, look, you're going to get these things right. We believe in you, but we're not bringing you back until you show that you can dominate. You've got to be an offensive force. He can't just be a, a good defender. There's no place for that in the game now. He's got to be an offensive weapon. All right, we're going to wrap this thing up here. But before we do that, I want to ask you one quick thing here because, and, and this is one of those things that, that that Debbie always does when we're leaving somebody's house. She says, okay, we're okay, we're going to go. Hey, listen, do you have that recipe for, uh, you know, milk duds? You know, it, it's like, 
Come on, now that's that's not a question you ask. That's not something you do on your way out the door. Debbie's making homemade milk duds. <laughs> I don't. That was all I could come up with on the top of my head. Can I get me some of them? I think I think I think I can make milk duds. Actually, I think I know how to do that. Uh, but anyway, my uh, look, Joy Gallo's off to a great start, uh, and uh, and he's he's doing everything they could want him to do, even with such little protection behind him, except when he's had Nate Lowe hitting behind him. Uh, that that was the big that's the big deal too with Nick Solak. He can't be hitting fourth. He can't be hitting fifth. He needs to be hitting eighth or ninth is where he needs to be hitting the lineup right now. Uh, but here's my question: Do you think there's any possible way that the Rangers would go to Joey at this point and Scott Boris and say, "Hey, how about a how about an extension here?" Um, listen, from my perspective. I look around at the Rangers right now, and this team expects to compete in 23 or 24, and I'm saying, where are the foundational pieces? Right. Um, and Joey's the one guy uh, who I think has demonstrated foundational capabilities. I think Isaiah Kiner-Falefa has a real role on this team. I don't know if he's ever going to be the offensive force that you consider a, fran a franchise-type cornerstone. If it's me... I'm going to Joey Gallo before the trade deadline this year, and I'm identifying that he has he has those abilities, that as a 27-year-old, he has arrived. And I'm trying to come up with an idea of a creative long-term extension, maybe full of opt-outs after three years or something like that, that would give him another real shot at free agency. But I don't, if, if I hope to, if I hope to lure Trevor Story here next year, if I hope to lure, say, a Noah Syndergaard or a Clayton Kershaw here next year, I better have some hope that there's going to be a team behind him. And right now, I don't see the franchise kind of players to put behind him. So, yes, for me, I think it's something they better think long and hard about uh, how they can potentially put the best possible contract offer on the table, regardless of what Scott's approach may be and regardless of what Scott may tell Joey. I think they need to at least make an effort here because I fear that there are not franchise caliber players to, to restock this team with at this point. I know people are afraid of making a mistake. You know, they made a mistake with Ruggie Odor and his contract. They made a mistake in some ways on Elvis, not as, not as big a mistake. I can remember when people thought that Michael Young's contract was a mistake. You know, here, here's my point. You're going to have one of the lowest payrolls in baseball. You can afford to make a mistake on Joey Gallo. Even if you, I don't think, first of all, he's going to play a terrific right field. He's going to be a gold glove. I mean, there were what, 17 defensive runs saved last year in right field last year. I think that was. He's a great defensive as, right fielder. And that's he's, twice as much as anybody else in the American league. And he's, he's matured. I'm, I'm, I'm completely confident that he's really matured both as a player, as a, um, with, as his approach at the plate and, and as a, as a person, um, and I'm not saying that, look, you go base a contract on four games. I, I think you've got some time here, but I think before the trade deadline, you better have made an effort to say, what would it take to keep him? Um, yeah. because I also am convinced that the trade deadline has not been a, a seller's market the last couple of years. I think that trend is going to continue. I think it's going to be maybe even more pronounced this year with the idea that, 2022 may include a work stoppage so you've got two pretty important decisions to make on that and and for me right now 
where my head's at, I feel like it makes more sense to potentially pursue a contract extension before I'm willing to try and trade him. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Well, we're going to talk about that some more later as we get as we go along here. We're going to talk more about the MLB draft as that as that gets closer and uh, the band. I watched got- Jack Leiter on Friday night. I had a big rocking night in Kansas City. Did you really? Yeah, I um, sat in my hotel room eating takeout. Did you have uh, takeout barbecue? Not Friday. Friday afternoon, I went and actually I actually sat in a restaurant for the first time in a year. Um, had some really good barbecue, and I will say again, where where did you have it? Uh, at Char Bar, um, Char Bar, Char Bar, um, which I had not been to before, but I had gotten a tip on Char Bar. It turns out that all the sauces at Char Bar are under the label of Meet Mitch, and Meet Mitch is Mitch Benjamin, who is a co-investor in the restaurant, and Mitch is also the uncle of Rangers pitcher Wes Benjamin. Oh so um, I wanted to go try it, and the sauces are really good. The burn ends were outstanding and the ribs were were out of this world. I will say this again, and this is nothing personal against Kansas City. And I don't know if it was Larry McMurtry or Kinky Friedman or who said it, but the only people in America who get brisket right are the Jews and Texas. <laughs> and you know, the, the 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 brisket in Kansas City, it comes out very thinly sliced. It's not as fatty as we're used to and as we like in Texas. And it's you got to order it wet. It's just different, man. And so um, I will I will happily go back to Char Bar and I will get more ribs and I will get more burn ins and I think I will try their sausage. But I think brisket, um, like Tex-Mex, is not going to be ordered north of the Red River anymore. There you go. That's a good plan. I like it. All right. That's going to do it for us here on uh, this podcast. We talked about uh, uh, Baylor winning a a basketball title. I still can't get over that. Unbelievable. The men's. Here's hats off to you, fellas. Great job. Uh, We talked about the Cowboys in the draft, uh, and we've talked about the Rangers, and and that we kind of went out on a downer there. But uh, but But we we talked about barbecue, and we talked (laughs) about my hamburger. We did talk about the barbecue and your hamburger, which is the second food that some stupid restaurant in this town has dedicated to you. I, I, I can't believe it. Biggest trend in Dallas food. Listen up, restaurateurs. You want to have a hot item. You want to name it after <laughs> yeah <laughs> exactly exactly all right well that's gonna do it for me and here and evan and everybody so from everybody in here to everybody out there thanks and we'll catch you next time mother's day is almost here and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around a watch she can wear every day for movement Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.